0: In this country, there are over 702 and four year colleges and universities designated as minority serving institutions, which educate 26% of all college students and over 40% of college students of color. Almost 80% of their students receive Pell Grants, and these schools include historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic serving institutions, tribal colleges and universities, and Asian American and Native Pacific Islander serving institutions. Professor Mary Beth Gassman has helped institutionalize and elevate the work of these critical American spaces, their staff, faculty, and students as the director of the Penn Center for Minority Serving Institutions at the University of Pennsylvania, and she has learned a lot along the way. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, a college counselor at CollegeWise and a former college admissions counselor at the University of Rochester who talks to people in the college and college admissions ecosystem whose work deserves whatever small amount of amplification I can provide via this little platform of mine. Work like that of Professor Gassman, who you'll hear a lot more from in a moment. First, welcome to new listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can be reminded when episodes come out because they, uh, they come out. Without warning, out of the blue, boom, new episode. You never know. It may rise to the level of uh, an emergency podcast like the one I put out with Eric Hoover uh, lately at the end of the uh, Aunt Becky college bribery scandal week, and uh, heaven forbid you miss stuff like that. You never know. On that topic, today's episode is very important to me as it represents a piece of going to college that I think is exactly what isn't being talked about, but what definitely ought to be getting discussed and that is that we have roughly 437 four-year minority-serving institutions in america a group of schools which as a system is doing a much better job of spreading the critical resource of a college education through american communities through what i'm going to guess as being a considerably higher admit rate on the whole than non-minority serving institutions which is to say To the extent that college is about social mobility, these schools stand as examples of places that are doing that work as a central element of their mission, if it isn't actually their whole actual mission. What is an MSI? Well, it's a federal designation for colleges with at least a 25% minority student enrollment, a designation which brings with it funding and other resources. These places matter because as we set national goals for improving college completion rates, you can't have that conversation without looking at these places which serve so many students overall and so many students who find themselves statistically below national averages for college completion. So I, I need to be honest, though. This conversation is not a deep dive into the matter of minority serving institutions themselves. I hope to have that talk with Professor Gassman, perhaps again in the not too distant future. But the fact remains that she is just such a generally interesting and fun person to talk to that we just kind of talk about a whole bunch of stuff that is uh, admittedly directly related to her work. But we uh, we really just uh, ended up talking about a whole variety of things. I was initially more personally interested to talk to her, as you'll hear at the outset, specifically to understand more about how the role of minorities in faculty and administrative roles matter in colleges in general and not just MSIs, an issue that Professor Gassman brought into the conversation in a major way, uh, first with a Heshinger Report post and then a Washington Post editorial on the same topic, saying more or less that faculty of color are simply not wanted in the ranks of college faculty. Professor Gassman also helped connect episode 24 guest Stanley Nelson to many of the resources he used to create his documentary on HBCUs called Tell Them We Are Rising. So if this talk interests you, make sure you head back and listen to that one too. We talk about the emergence of her work and this center, what she has learned about the nature of doing academic work, specifically what black colleges taught her about the power of collaborative work in general, the complicated matters of diversity at HBCUs, what it's like for a white person to do work on minority issues, and her thoughts on how to regard the matter of diversity in college if you're a family in the process of selecting colleges to apply to, and especially if you're a student of color. I spoke to her long ago in the winter months, as you'll hear from her office at the Penn Center for Minority Serving Institutions in Philadelphia. Well, I really, I, I, I do not want to keep you. Uh, we've, we've got a, you've got a hard out.
1: I got a what? You have a hard out. out yeah, yeah, I do at five. Yeah. At
0: five p.m. Yeah. Which is. One hour and two minutes from now, because that, that you be okay? have to go to the John Legend concert. Yes, and uh, far be it from me to get between anyone and, and John Legend. <laughs> so I first learned about you and the things you think about via <laughs> yeah, the article that came out in the Washington Post about that you wrote
1: mm-hmm.
0: about higher ed about hiring in higher ed. The, the, the title is an Ivy League professor on why colleges don't hire more faculty of color. We don't want them. Um, Very provocative title, much more provocative idea and thing to say out loud Mm -hmm. with words Mm -hmm. uh, in print. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife was going through the hiring process as a recently minted PhD in developmental psychology She is from puerto rico as i mentioned to you and was looking for professor jobs i believe that's the technical term professor Mm -hmm. jobs uh in psych departments all over the place and you know couldn't help but feel like and experience and recognize very much that um in a lot of the a lot of the jobs that she was going for she was inevitably passed over for a white guy and that plus a whole lot of other experiences that she had in 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 higher ed and being one of the very few people of color in the room ever um i said wow check out this article she said i don't want to i don't even want to read it and i don't know that she has and like i told her i was coming down here to talk to you and i said yeah it was that article and she's like, "Yeah, you remember i didn't even want to read it i was like oh right yes mm-hmm. why did you where did that come from and what do you mean
1: Uh, well it came from I was giving a a talk at the New York Times higher education forum and uh, so I was up on stage and I was there to talk about minority-serving institutions but you know not a lot of people actually care about minority-serving institutions so here I was professor at an Ivy League institution the topic of faculty hiring and diversity came up and the commentator uh, uh, who was uh, Nicole Hannah Jones from the New York Times? She said to me, uh, You know, why is it that we don't have more diversity in faculty at these majority inst- institutions, um, especially the elite ones? And, you know, my answer, quite bluntly on stage, was because we don't want them. And the interesting thing is that I got a standing ovation from the crowd um, because I think prior to my getting on stage, People were just kind of talking about these elite institutions, and and nobody was uh, being very open or blunt about the issues. They were acting as if there's no responsibility on the part of these institutions, and that there are no problems, right? So I just I had been sitting in the audience a little bit frustrated by how centered on these elite institutions the conversation was. So I said, "We don't want them," and. Uh, what and then I went into the five different reasons why I didn't think that you know why I really didn't firmly believe that people want them. So you know I, what I ended up doing is someone from the Heckinger report came up to me at a cocktail party afterward, and she said, "Would you be able willing to put that in writing?" And I said, "Yeah, I mean I have tenure, you know I'm a full professor. Sure, I'll do it." So I wrote a piece for the Heckinger report that was much more. It's the same. It's the same piece, but. It had a different title, so it was just like five things, blah, 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 and it was kind of benign. I got a lot of reaction to it, but only about 500 people emailed me, right? The Washington Post decided to pick it up. That's
0: a low number for...
1: Well, wait till you see what happened with the okay. Washington Post. So I don't
0: think 500... 500- People have emailed me and Well,
1: time. I get about 300 350 emails a day. Oh, you're and a I big got five hundred. Well, you don't answered mine. I know, I answer all Thank my you. email. Oh. I'm very, okay. very um I was FYI, raised Catholic. So. Listeners. So, yeah. <laughs> she answers every email. <laughs> I was raised Catholic, so I have this like thing about you know, follow through. So anyway, um it went really well, and I guess the Washington Post contacted the Heckinger report. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, "Can we run this?" So the Washington Post ran it with that headline. I they showed it to me. But um, you, know, you can't pick headlines for stories, that's, that's the editor's job. So um, if you don't open it, you just probably just assume I'm a racist, right? <laughs> but if you click on it, one of the things you figure out really quickly is that it's about the fact that I don't think that we're sincere in our efforts to recruit faculty of color, mm-hmm. and I showed why. And so just to give you a little bit of background, when that article came out, you know, I talked about these five reasons and they have to do with how we interpret quality. They have to do with the fact that we make exceptions, all kinds of, (coughs) excuse me, um, exceptions for white folks all the time. And I gave examples of that. And then um, it has to do with how we say that they're not in the pipeline, that they're not available. Um, it also has to do with that we don't ser- we don't train search committees and they just reproduce the status quo. And then also that we all actually have all the answers. People have been doing research on this and providing all kinds of practical solutions, but we just, <coughs> excuse me, really don't want to go, we don't want to do it. So when that article came out, um, within three days... I had over five thousand emails I got in three days. So, uh, and you know, I was just completely overwhelmed. I got calls, I, t- Twitter, Facebook, everything was just going nuts. The Washington Post said that they had not seen an article that happened to an article, especially related to education, and this in is, for this a long, is long, long time. probably
0: of 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 every every point of view on the matter too, right? The the, the nature of the tone of the emails that you're getting.
1: Right. So every, yeah, definitely. So I will tell you that in the end, I ended up getting, um, I think to date now, I've gotten over 7,000. So I've gotten even more and I still, it still gets posted. I still Mm -hmm. get emails. I I got another email today. (laughs) I got, it was posted all over Twitter again the other day. Um, One of the things that happened is, so the vast majority of the emails were from people of color with PhDs from very prestigious institutions across the nation who could not get jobs. So I had almost 5,000 of those to date. Jeez. Of people of color who could not find jobs. Now I got, and then, so if you're looking at this big body of about 7,000 emails that I've gotten over the past two years, I also ended up with about 500. It's kind of interesting.
0: This is it's kind of turned into a data set. Uh, on it is own, a data right? set. Yeah. I
1: have like it all in Excel. You know, I, I took the names uh-huh. off people, but I ha- I put it in Excel. Of course. So, um, but the other thing I got were about like 500 or so emails from people saying, you know, I I completely agree with you. I've seen all these things happen they were white right and i know that these things happen so i just want you to know you're not alone here uh-huh. i got about another 500 or so from people who said i did all these things to women i've done them to people of color and i realize that i need to stop hmm. in some kind of way right. but the most interesting thing that i got and this is probably the thing that made your you know that would make your wife hurt right Mm -hmm. is that i got about 500 emails that were extremely negative and that were mean and nasty and vile and all of them every single one was about african americans Mm -hmm. i didn't get any vile emails about asian americans latinos native americans Only African-Americans. Zero. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that the people who wrote probably don't hold those same views, but their vile nastiness was directed toward African-Americans. And the thing is that they put all their names on these emails. They weren't from anonymous accounts. I actually know where they work all over the country, and you know I didn't respond to any of them. I did take three days and respond to all the other emails. How does that sit with your faith? Um what do you mean
0: my um You didn't respond to those, you know, but you I responded, didn't. I mean I
1: didn't respond you, to any you mentioned of the mean Catholic ones. your Catholic constitution yeah.
0: being a part of why you responded. Yeah, to that. I yeah.
1: mean, I would tell you that okay, so one thing you should know about me <laughs> is that um I don't respond to haters or trolls. So I've had to get to the Cheers. Point, yeah, I I just had to get to the point where um because I've, you know, I've been dragged by Rush Limbaugh on his show, I've had the what's it, not the um the not the daily caller but the daily Um, That, that, um, the Daily Stormer write horrible pieces about me. So, you know, I've had people a few years ago or a year ago, I had a death threat here. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the thing is that I've just learned just not to respond to haters, but I always respond to to good people. Right. I mean, and, and, and so, um, I did respond to all of them and because most of those people sent me like these gut wrenching kind of stories of their life. So that's kind of what happened with that that piece. And, you know, now it's been two years. And I've give I, I actually give a talk related to the piece where I you know go more in depth, and then I have I'm working on a book right now that's going to come out with Princeton University Press, and it's um it's called We Don't Want Them, and it's about faculty diversity in the academy, and um and it's you know using data and elaborating on this whole topic.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that one of the reasons that my wife didn't want to read it is probably because she just didn't need to necessarily see the evidence of what she was already kind of experiencing because she still needed to deal with it because she hadn't been hired yet, you know? Right, I would
1: agree, I would agree. And the, But the one thing I will say is whenever I give a talk, I always tell people that I'm actually hopeful. And uh, they're like, how can you be hopeful when you've seen all these things, right? Because I've seen them all across the country. You know, I've seen them at my own institution and other places that I've been, but I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful because of younger faculty, not in age per se, but on the track, They tend to be much more open-minded they tend to be just um much more open to having difference and i think for me that makes me hopeful um i also am hopeful because i've seen quite a few institutions i was just at one the other day that has decided you know what you're gonna when you apply here you're gonna tell us how you're gonna contribute to diversity inclusion equity regardless of what um area you're in Mm -hmm. and that makes me hopeful. Now, there are some people who would be mad about that. They'd say it's an infringement on academic freedom. I I believe in academic freedom wholeheartedly, but I also think that it's important that everyone be on the same page when it comes to making sure a place is inclusive, that you have equity, that you you know, value a whole variety of different people. So I'm actually kind of hopeful. Um, and I think if you point out these things and put them out in the open mm-hmm. they're more likely to go away one of the things that i do whenever i'm giving a talk is i talk about the silence so it's not necessarily the loud people saying all the terrible things the ones that scare me are those that are silent and don't speak up you know the that um so you'll have a lot of faculty who are afraid to speak up and, um and just won't do it and so those are the ones that I'm trying to challenge to say you have to speak up you mm-hmm. can't just let these people bowl over you know uh, good candidates you if you see systemic racism you've got to speak up you know that whole Amtrak thing if you see something say something I think that's how we need to approach um, systemic racism in the academy but I don't see a lot of faculty speaking up. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Um, there are probably a whole variety of reasons, but I would say that, okay, so I think, um, some of them are afraid that they're going to lose their job and there are risks if you speak up. I mean, people will make your life miserable. You know, they will try. So not everybody's cut out for that. They're afraid they're not going to get tenure. Um, they're afraid, um, some of them, it's just not in their nature to speak up which you know that can sometimes be a little bit problematic for me um, i think that there are some that are not willing to risk not getting a raise right because you might you might get your hands slapped speaking the up well that's
0: same stuff that happens kind of with every job every right? job so, yeah you know.
1: absolutely um, the other thing is like think about it in life like how many people are we willing to put our our jobs on the line for Right. Like how many people are we willing to to risk our own livelihood for? Not that many. And I mean, and oftentimes if you are someone who who is willing to speak up, people after a while don't even take you that seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, so. So well, it's yeah. one of
0: the things that I mean, it, it is. Um, I can speak from from a lot of experience that it isn't a, that, that it's an instinct that you have to cultivate, you know, that it doesn't come naturally. To right. a lot of people, to right. do that, I mean, just because you know, as we've I think been taught, um, you're kind of going to get punished for it.
1: Yeah, and, you are. You know,
0: maybe in in very real economic terms, if it's the workplace, mm-hmm. but also like there's this book that I, I I've, I'm reading that I have in here. You've probably seen this. Oh yeah, White yeah. Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, <laughs> and one of the things that she talks about is you know people that that exhibit this defensiveness if you charge them with having done something racist let alone being one uh that 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 defensiveness is a form of bullying that they say they are going to make it so hard for Mm -hmm. you to confront uh this issue with them that you're not going to want to because it is such a uh it's going to be such an unpleasant experience for everybody as a result
1: Right. And I I also think, for example, I often tell people when I'm giving a talk, like when I'm talking to white folks, I'll say to them, one of the things that white people are the most afraid of is being called a racist. Mm -hmm. They're really, really afraid of that. And what I say to them is, let me tell you something. If someone calls you racist, you're still going to wake up white with all your privilege the next day. Mm-hmm. You're still going to wake up. You're, you're going to be okay. You might learn something. You might reflect on it. You might contemplate it. And I think one of the things that you know I see is that, and and I would urge everyone to do this because you know people of color can be prejudiced as well, right? But we should all be checking our behavior and ourselves all the time. Like I I really think this is important. Like whenever. You know when um, sometimes you'll hear from a variety of people the same message about yourself? I think once you hear it from like three people, you got to start looking at yourself and saying, okay, well, maybe I need to make some changes. Mm-hmm. And if you're starting to see that pushback... That would if, be the
0: healthy be the healthy Right, thing to that's do. a
1: healthy way to do it. But not everybody wants to do that. <laughs> no. But I do think that that's healthy. Double down. Right. I also think that you should surround yourself with people who are different from you, who are willing to tell you when you are not um you know when when you're not being inclusive well another thing not, that, that yeah. takes
0: a lot of courage you know and and it is it, it is it is anything but you know the uh, uh the path of least resistance to do that you know and it's the kind of thing that i i advise kids when i'm talking about picking colleges it's like you got to go to a place that's going to feel uncomfortable i mean it's all going to feel weird anyways i mean just because it is what it is yeah um But that, you know, you should sort of seek out the maximum degree of discomfort that you can tolerate almost, you know, because in terms of the kind of people that are going to be around, you know, the whatever it is, the academic pressures, whatever, because that's the way that you grow. But again, you know, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about members of my own family to whom I've not spoken for some time because... Uh, They revealed themselves to be racists Um, uh, over the course of the last presidential election. It became very difficult for me to to speak to them about this without that that bullying defensiveness coming up. Um, And that I got to the point where I had to say to myself, like, you know and I still don't know that I've got the answer to this question you know to what extent is this my responsibility to kind of teach them about this stuff you know and I think that it's different when you're in the Academy and when you're in uh, a college campus and you're in a community here where at least there is the you know arguable but more than the off-campus reality that you're in a place where you can discuss difficult ideas
1: right and I think so you know family and the Academy are two separate things I do feel like I mean I have a bunch of those people in my family but I'm not Aside from my mom, I'm not really close with my family. But um, I, I do think if I was close with my family, I would probably be pushing back a bit. My mom's not like that at all, so I don't have to push back. But within the academy, I do think that there are a lot of people who don't think it's their job. And whereas I do think that if you're going to be a full participant in higher education, that and that you actually care about students, and you care about learning, and you care about... Um, You know, equity, if you really care about those things, then you need to be speaking up. I think the problem, and this is the problem in society, this is the problem nearly everywhere, that the problem is that people, good people don't speak up. You know, it's what what is the quote from Martin Luther King? It's it's not the right. It's not what our enemies say. It's the silence of our friends, right? And and I I butchered that, but but it's it's basically the silence of our friends. And so, but I have a lot of people who will, when I'm giving a talk on this topic, will say to me, "Well, I'm afraid, I'm afraid." And I try. I even gave a talk recently where I talked about the power that faculty have. Now, not all faculty have power, you know. But if you're a tenured Tenured professor, and you're at a fairly, you know, um, resource, well-resourced institution. You have a considerable amount of power compared to other people, mm-hmm. and you should be able to use that that power to help other people. Right. I feel. But again, you will you will pay a price. If you rock the boat too much that's that's how it works and you know people will find ways of shutting you up of shutting you down of slapping your hand I mean these are these are things that happen and you can all you got to do is look you can see across the country where this happens to various professors
0: right yeah Um, let me shift gears and, Mm -hmm. um, and and ask you about your your work here so you're the director of the
1: Penn Center for Minority Serving Institutions. Thank you.
0: And, um, yeah, <laughs> so did the Penn Center for Minority Serving Institutions exist before Mary Beth Gaspin or did you put this thing together?
1: Um, I created it in 2014, so it's about to be five years old. Oh, wow, so it's still really new. Mm-hmm. It's very new.
0: Where did this come from? What were you um, doing before that, and why did you decide to have, get, 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 in, <laughs> get behind this crazy idea?
1: So um, I've been a professor here for 15 years. And I think maybe in 2009, I, you know, I was a full professor. Um, I was sitting in my office one day. And um, I started to think a little bit about what I wanted to do in the future. And then it took me a little while, I ended up Um, shifting my work a little bit from just doing research related to black colleges to minority serving institutions overall and um, by about 2013 I sat down with two of my PhD students and I said I think that rather than just you know I've written 25 books right so rather than just write books or all these peer-reviewed articles and I, I wanna do something to give back and I wanna do something that has a larger impact and that is more f- um, family oriented and communal. So we started, we kinda laid a plan and got some seed funding and from outside of the university. and. Um, although my president did give me some funding uh, early on, a small amount of funding. But um, one of the things that we did is just put together a plan and then we decided to open a center related to um, uh, uplifting and um, highlighting the work of minority serving institutions. So, you know, there are over 650 of them across the nation. Um, and they educate uh, 26% of all students and over 40% of students of color and enormous amounts of low-income students, like almost 84% of the students are on Pell Grant. So
0: what does a school have to do to meet that designation to be considered a minority-serving institution?
1: They, it's a federal designation, oh, okay. and so they would have to apply to be either um, a Hispanic-serving institution, a low-income Asian American and Pacific Islander-serving Native American serving. They could already be a black college or a tribal college. They don't have to qualify. Um, And then, or you could be predominantly black institution. Why
0: would a school seek that designation?
1: Um, There's funding tied to it, and um, they can get that funding and then better serve their students. So that's, being able to provide more programming for your students and retain them is probably one of the major reasons. Um, and so you know we wanted to do research related to those institutions we wanted to do programs and mm-hmm. I wanted it all to be free mm-hmm. so we have all kinds of programs at our center every single thing is free we don't charge for anything and then we also you know we engage you all got to kinds sign in at the
0: front desk though
1: well that's the higher ed okay. front desk yeah right. <laughs> did they make you sign in <laughs>
0: uh, I think they they, they I told them I mentioned I dropped your name Oh, okay <laughs> So, in addition to answering all your emails, (laughs) listeners, all you got to do is drop your name in the front desk. (laughs) They'll send you right around.
1: Yeah. So, um, so basically, uh, we—it's really important to me because we're located at Penn Mm -hmm. that we don't charge for our programs. So, our um, programs—they're really not focused on Penn though. They're focused on um, bringing opportunity to students, faculty, staff, presidents um alumni of minority serving institutions so they range from everything from uh programs for those people who aspire to be college presidents programs for students who want to study abroad uh programs around uh becoming a a professor Mm -hmm. and um we have like graduate student weekends um, we have uh, programs related to internships and career opportunities and what we do is we partner with a lot of other organizations and then we bring in money. So we're, we're pretty heavily funded. Um, we bring in money and then we um, partner with all kinds of minority serving institutions across the country to support a variety of different uh, um, programs and we also we fund researchers, uh, we we promote the work of researchers, mainly people of color, but not always. And and uh, that was really important to me, to rather than merely focus on my own career, I wanted to start like a network of people interested in this topic and also to get more people, and I think this is really important, to be generous in the academy. Like I feel like the academy is this me, 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 really me-focused environment. And I don't think that that is helpful. I don't like it at all. Um, and so one of the things that I do with my research team here is that, um, everybody works together, everybody supports each other, regardless of their degree. Um, everybody gets credit. And, uh, and I think that that's, the best approach, rather than the me 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 approach.
0: This reminds me of something you said in a video that I saw um, while I was, you know, doing my, my daily YouTube search of Mary Beth Gasman mm-hmm. content on YouTube. Um, where you said something about that in the sort of traditional academy environment, especially at probably a place like Penn. You know, there's this th- there's this attitude of look to your right and look to your left. Only one of you guys is going to be here. At the end of this Mm -hmm. class because this ain't for suckers Mm -hmm. you know what i mean but then that there's a different attitude which is to say particularly i think you were saying at minority serving institutions Mm -hmm. that if you look to your right and you look to your left you're responsible for the success of those people right and so this sounds very much like the exact same philosophy mindset that you bring to this project which right. kind of came
1: with, first which there, I, did okay. one
0: inform the other? Or yes, how did it?
1: so my work related to historically black colleges mm-hmm. informed the way that I wanted to do work at our center, which is um, which is that you're everyone's responsible for everyone else's success. I
0: just think that is, it's just so fantastic.
1: Well, I really like <laughs> it. I will you know, tell it, you it, not everybody is game for that. Well, I just,
0: you never hear, I don't know, I, I have to be honest, I feel like I've heard every line that a college can say to promote itself. Um, But they just never seem to have put it quite that succinctly. You know, that like we have this expectation of our students that you guys will be responsible for the success of your classmates.
1: Yeah, which would be wonderful if we all were like that. You know, I, I heard today that um, some senators wrote to US News and World Report yeah. to try to get them to make one of the factors in their rankings um, social, how you add to social mobility. Right. Um, which hopefully they can do that because that would really switch the rankings around. But I, I think that there, there are black colleges are better than anyone at being able to kind of promote the ethos of it's important that you support one another. I It's not the norm. It's just not the norm. Uh, and I, I think that black colleges and women's colleges are probably some of the best. Like My daughter goes to Bryn Mawr, and she feels very, very supported by the other women, and she feels an obligation to support them as well. But... That's just not the norm. I do think what we can change it little by little. Like I've been working really hard with my students to to get them to be more generous toward others, to get them to realize that they're interconnected. But all of that I learned from black colleges. And I always say that, that most of the ways that we work in our center are mirrored after the ways that um, minority serving institutions operate and that black colleges in particular have, have excelled at like we've I've really tried to do that because I learned a lot you know you got to learn when you're doing research right ideally don't yeah but I've really (laughs) learned I've changed my teaching habits based on my research on minority serving institutions I've changed the way that I lead I've changed the way that I think about I do think like most faculty are trained to that you are your own little island and that you're just supposed to speed past people and excel at everything and I think what happens is we forget that we should be if we're while while we're speeding along you know build everyone else's boats too and so that everybody can be in the water kind of moving forward Mm -hmm. and i don't feel like that's how most of us operate and so i've really worked really hard to to do that but i'm not going to say that i was always like that but i definitely have changed you know a lot of the way that i operate
0: what is it about the uh, about black colleges that that have created that attitude or created that that expectation for its students
1: I don't think there's any other way to operate historically because you're all that black people have. You have to support each other because white folks aren't going to support you, right? So um, historically, if, if black colleges didn't band together and everyone wasn't ta- taking care of each other, how are, how are black folks going to survive? Right? How are they going to excel? And so I think that's part of the ethos of you know the way they were created and the way that they've um, they created the black middle class and and then even to this day they realize and think about it right now. I mean, you have a situation in the United States where I mean, if I were the mother of a young black man or woman. I would be worried every time they left the house. I mean, I worry right now having a young white girl, right? But I would be really worried because I would worry about the way that they're viewed in society and just the the hatred and disrespect for blacks. And you know, I noticed immediately when you came in here, you had a little Black Lives Matter thing around your wrist, right? Yep. And you—I don't know if you noticed—I have a sign on my door, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I—I I think that one of the things about black colleges that is really wonderful is that you never, ever have to worry that your life doesn't matter there Mm -hmm. because your life is central as a black person. Mm -hmm. And so, um, of course, you're going to take care of each other. That doesn't mean that they don't instill a sense of competition, Mm -hmm. but you can have healthy competition while also taking care of one another.
0: Well, it's interesting because it it certainly seems like you know, so when you talk about minority-serving institutions, you're not talking about highly selective institutions generally. In the main, there are I mean, some. Right, I, there are yeah. some, but I think, you know, on average, uh, they, they they certainly don't come close to like Penn, okay, in places no, like I that. I would
1: never, I mean, most institutions don't come close to Ivy League institutions. Uh, right. right, I mean,
0: it's ridiculous to kind of make that comparison, yeah. but I guess in general, you know, when I think about the degree to which the narrative is being driven by things like the U.S. News & World Report, yeah. which you mentioned earlier, and you know i think about um you know the so much but like the the uh the the attitude of you know competitive versus collaborative Mm -hmm. you know that one of the myriad horrors visited upon society by the existence of the US news world report is that you are the, the competitive streak is is valued much more over oh, collaborative yeah, yeah. right and so i think that that's sort of why maybe you tend to see that's a, i don't know it strikes me as a reason why you might see uh, more of the competitive spirit alive and well at very highly selective mm-hmm. pwis mm-hmm. as opposed to um, minority serving institutions and then also i think about the this article that came out with the the landry school in, in 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 new orleans mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah i mean pick your tragedy there um it just all the way around is one of the craziest things i've ever heard of and it's just beyond tragic um and there's of course that there were this is a very small i think mainly privately funded school in louisiana that fudged the records of students so that they could get into highly selective, mm-hmm. highly ranked by the U.S. news kinds of places. Um, and, you know, I think about social mobility and, you know, you look at it, So one of the things that <clears throat> I definitely saw the video of that kid getting yeah, into Harvard, yeah. right? And falling into the arms of the assembled masses right. there. And I mean, it was just this massive, just good feeling, mm-hmm. right? And this kid in his mind it's like he won the lottery yeah, in more ways than one, right? And I wonder if we, I mean, and it seems that, you know, and I looked at this college net social mobility index they produce. My wife works at Baruch, which is number one Mm -hmm. on the list of social mobility. Um, And it feels good to get into something that not everybody gets to get into. You know, we get this and we get a rush. We can't help it in our brain, right? But on the other hand, it's like, you know, if you want a guaranteed trip up the ladder, Mm go to Baruch, mm-hmm. and shouldn't we be seeing videos right. of kids going absolutely apeshit over getting into Baruch, which isn't anywhere, it's tough, but it's not anywhere near as tough as Harvard. Right. Which is like, man, do that. Why, right, I mean, right.
1: I mean, part of it is that, I mean, most of these Ivy League you know, institutions or institutions like this they're they're not adding a huge amount to social mobility because most of the students that they accept are, are already affluent, at the top you know yeah. or upper middle class to affluent right so but i i actually do believe that the best institutions for students are those that are going to take them from, you know, one socioeconomic status and move them up. And, you know, I think if you look at that Chetty data um, out of Stanford, you can can see which institutions are doing the best. Mm -hmm. And those are the institutions that we should be recommending. The problem is that people are always um so enamored with the name of an institution right and we we tend to fall back anyway i mean we tend to be just incredibly elitist about this no matter who we are yeah we tend (laughs) we tend we're hardwired that way yeah i mean you know i I i've had people ask me before um you know why my because my daughter goes to Bryn Mawr which is a women's college which has a beautiful history and everything but people always ask me well why didn't you send her to, um, you know, to an Ivy league or what? Well, first of all, I'm not sending my daughter anyway, where she's going to decide where she's gonna go. But I think it's really important that people pick an institution that they feel is a good fit for them. So for my daughter, she wanted to be at a small liberal arts college. She likes that nurturing feeling of a small liberal arts college. She also wanted to be at a place where she felt that women were empowered and felt empowered, right? And felt confident, because that's really important to her. She also was very interested in being in a place that emphasized the humanities, because she's a humanities-based person. She writes graphic novels, right? That's what she wants to do. So so I think when people ask me that question, I'm always like, well, it where people go, ha-, and they assume because I'm here, like, you know, why wouldn't she go here? Or why wouldn't she go to an institution like this? Sometimes you have a child who just that, that's not the best fit for them. That's not where they're gonna be the Tuition most successful. Tuition remission
0: be damned.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so it is free here for, but, but well, it I mean, would have been. But yeah, but I mean, you also, you know, one thing to think about is that children of faculty and staff, and it doesn't matter what your role is here, they have to get in, number one, and then they, they have to wanna to go to a place like this. Mm-hmm. And not everybody wants to. I mean, some people want a different experience. And, um, and so I, I think that's important to think about. What I often do is I try to look at where, you know, where are the institutions where a Pell Grant eligible student does well. That's what I want to know. You know, rather than because it's it's fairly easy for an affluent student to do well. They got all kinds of safety nets. They probably had all the test prep, all the extra stuff. Yeah. Right. Whereas it's a lot harder. And I was a Pell Grant student. You know, I grew up very very poor, and I I went to school on Pell Grant and a student. Where'd loan. you grow up? I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah. Yes. So I grew up extremely poor, and the only reason why I went to school is because a teacher helped me with my application and financial Mm -hmm. aid, and I was completely paid for. Mm -hmm. So my parent, my parents were uh, expected to pay five hundred dollars a year, parent contribution. They couldn't pay that at all Mm -hmm. because they didn't have that money. So Mm -hmm. I worked it off in the summer, but the thing is that my institution which i went to this little school called saint norbert college should get a pat on the back for taking me from the lowest income in the country to someone now who's a professor at penn mm-hmm, you know like mm-hmm, i mean mm-hmm. so that's a big deal right uh, they 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 should that that's a point of pride yeah
0: um, you've so. been talking about, you've been thinking about HBCUs for a really long time. This is your yes. primary uh, area of research. Yeah?
1: Yes. And I started doing research related to HBCUs in 1994. Mm-hmm. So it's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. My, 24 um, years.
0: <clears throat> I um, my, my dad uh, went to uh, Brown. I'm from mm-hmm. Portland, as we established earlier. Um, and not just you didn't just stare look at me and say you must be from portland even though you got close yeah okay. yeah no <laughs> you, you said you look like a lumberjack which is yeah, okay you That's do fine. look like a i'm okay jack. with that <laughs> i could be accused of looking like worse things than half uh-huh. but um my dad went to he went to brown and then he uh and he did in like 1968 or 69 he did a semester at tougaloo mm-hmm. in oh, Mississippi. Yeah. um and uh I, I would really like to visit one day um Ideally, with him, don't think like he's been back mm-hmm. since then. But um, I've always kind of had a little bit of an inkling, of a sense that these things existed because of that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I probably would have no no real clue. Yeah, especially no real...
1: being from Portland, yeah.
0: <laughs> nailed yeah. it. You know, so for instance, I like I have a student that I work with, African American girl, who I've asked, "What about HBCUs?" You know, and I'm thinking, you know, putting schools on her list for her to think mm-hmm. about, and she says, "You know, Dad says." You know, you're going to live in a white world, you got to go to a white school, you know. Um, What do you say to something like that?
1: Well, first of all, you're actually not going to live in a white world if you're um, applying for school right now. Because, um, you know, pretty soon by 2050, which is not that far away, and it's already happening. The country will be majority-minority. We already have huge increases in Latinos, in Asian American Pacific Islanders. Yes,
0: but that is not tri- that is not filtering up to the uh, level of institutional control
1: to you mean to the older folks or you mean to the people controlling like resources
0: yeah like let's you know she yeah, she lists you're them right. here in this book she says you know uh, let's see let me see if I can find them. i know you got to get to see john legend to put over No but you're get, but, you but, you but you are right you know what i mean that, that like people, if you look at the who's in charge of the military who's right, in charge of the you right. know presidents of the you know uh, of of the uh, university so on so absolutely. Ab- ab- they're all white right
1: right what i would say is that you are seeing some some changes in that and I think you'll continue to see more, but here's the other thing that people forget is that black, like black colleges are some of the most diverse institutions in the nation. So their faculty is more diverse than all of all other types of institutions. You know, it, yes, it's 60% black, but it's 40% everything else. So mm-hmm. most majority institutions, they're 78% white.
0: And this is an interesting, this is like just a fascinating thing to think about that I believe one of the things that you wrote about in a recent report that you did Mm -hmm. on sort of the state of HBCUs is that if they're going to kind of make it, uh, that one of their goals needs to be to diversify their faculty or rather diversify the students. And obviously we think about that, we in the PWI sort of thinking and living (laughs) landscape. As a completely different phenomenon, but for HBCUs, that means bring in more students who are not necessarily African American students. Right, I think to survive, you kind of have to do
1: that. Like everybody has to take in a whole variety of students. Mm -hmm. Um, But HBCUs, their student body is actually fairly diverse. I mean, it's overall they're thirteen percent white. They're. You know, they they have about, uh, right now, it's a little over 3% Latino, you know, about 2% Asian. You have a lot of um, multiracial students Mm -hmm. that are going to HBCUs. You have a lot of international students across the board. Um,
0: What does the composition, the racial and ethnic composition look like between undergraduate programs and graduate programs? The
1: graduate programs are much more diverse, but the undergraduate programs, especially at public HBCUs, they're fairly diverse. The privates are a little less diverse, Mm -hmm. um, but they're changing. Like, for example, in Texas, the institutions are becoming not only um, historically black, but also Hispanic serving. Mm -hmm. If you look in North Carolina, there's an influx of Latinos there. You're seeing the same thing with the HBCUs there, getting more and more Latino students. Um, So that is changing. And some of them are actually going after a whole variety of students. You know, they're never going to not take you, but the thing in terms of race, I mean, they're just not like that. Right. But there are institutions that have hired Latinos to be in their college admissions. They've hired Asian Americans to be in their college admissions. So I think they see the writing on the wall that they have to appeal to a whole variety of students. Um, The other thing is what i would tell a parent who said you know you you got to go to a white school you live in a white world is that all black college students the minute they step off that campus they're in a white world so when they go to dinner if they go to dinner like go get pizza at a local place they're in a white world if they if they you know go get a haircut if they whatever they're gonna they're on their way through a white world to wherever they go and i think that's important another thing is that Most of the boards of trustees have white folks on them. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the staff are white uh, or other, you know, races. I think that sometimes because they're called historically black, people make the assumption that they're all black. And Mm -hmm. they're just they're not. I I actually don't have any issue, even if everybody was black. I think you can still navigate both of those worlds. But it's just not true that everyone's black. They're Mm -hmm. incredibly diverse. They need to do a better job at talking about that diversity um, but I understand sometimes why they might not. I mean, some of the alumni want to hold on to that specialness, right? To that kind of safeness, to that nurturing environment. And I get that. I get
0: that. Don't you think that, you you know, the enterprising white student that goes to an HBCU is a pretty special kind of kid that, uh, you know, is, is, is going to be probably very deferential to that tradition?
1: I think that most white students not all of them I'd say some of the publics you're gonna get people who are just there for you know like to because they got the courses and it's not that expensive but I do think that there have been students and I've known quite a few white students and there's some research on this most of them not all but most of them are feel very comfortable among African Americans feel more comfortable among African Americans and they some of them go because they want to challenge themselves they want a different, environment, they want to um, be feel what it's like to maybe be othered mm-hmm. and be able to use those experiences to convince whites that, that they need to change their perspectives.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah. just, it just strikes me as amazing, correct, courageous. Yeah. M- most people are not doing that.
1: <laughs> no, most people aren't gonna do that because most people are afraid of things that are different. But I mean, you got to think about black students who go to majority institutions where everybody's white. Imagine what they 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 feel like, you know, when they go to an institution and they're in the classroom and they're the only black person, and they're, you know, they they are in a residence hall and they're the only black person. Um, I that's happening all over the place.
0: Hmm. Um. Hey, you're a white lady. I am. <laughs>
1: I am a white lady. Thank you. <laughs>
0: uh, I have to imagine that this has been that you've you've hit plenty of hurdles along the way um with communities of color uh in doing the work that you're doing and in achieving kind of a position of leadership in this and Mm. that it's no doubt that your white privilege has contributed to your ascension here Mm -hmm. right to uh Mm -hmm. this position and perhaps your uh your, your, your Catholic humility um, has uh, informed a great deal, the extent to which you have sought a collaborative approach here in the mm-hmm. center. But what's that been like for you? And, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a difficult thing, right? Where uh, that we're doing a lot of talking about now that I'm glad that we're doing a lot of talking about is like how to be a good white ally you know, instead of, like, t- trust me, like, look how woke I am. I mean, Jesus, I'm wearing the damn bracelet. Mm-hmm. Just take, t- I mean, could I be any clearer? Yeah. You know, but obviously there are some inherent challenges there. Um, yeah,
1: there are. I mean, so I would say a couple of things. I don't typically run around, like, saying that I'm an ally.
0: That's I, probably rule number one, Yeah, right? I would not do that. Shut up with I that stuff. I also wouldn't say that, I yeah. mean, I
1: don't really. I, I, well, no, I you're, really, no, look, yeah. you're
0: in a place now. Yeah, where it's clear to anybody that understands who you are for about two seconds. If they get you know, to know where me, your heart but is people and have prejudices, is stuff, yeah. But like on the path to that. Yeah,
1: on the path it was a little different. So a couple of things I would say is that um, the the most resistance I've received has been from white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and i will even tell you that as i've done more research related to just faculty of color at majority institutions i've had white people say to me you know we were okay with you when you were just doing research related to those little hbcus and they'll say it like in a really derogatory way but you know we, we I, i'm not i'm not game for this new research that you're doing because you know they were okay with me just sticking to hbcus cuz to them hbcus didn't matter mm-hmm. and but if you start getting into their faculty the systemic racism they get mad so there were groups of white people who didn't pay me any attention. There were groups of white people who hate HBCUs and thought I'm a terrible person and I shouldn't be supportive of them. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm critical when need be because I'm a researcher. I'm not I don't consider myself an advocate. I consider myself a researcher. And I don't think I think you can be an activist and a professor, but Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think you should be an advocate about something you're doing research about. I think you should, you know, you have to keep a pretty clear mind. Yeah. Um, so I will say that over the years, um, I have had, you know, occasionally African Americans who Um, Never met me, but made assumptions about who I am, my motives. Um, I've had African-Americans on occasion um, who have... You know just you don't have a right to do this you shouldn't be doing this i mean i am never going to tell anybody that they don't have the right to do research i'm not going to play those games mm-hmm. and um the o- other thing is i don't think that you can be critical of people for not doing anything and then criticize them for doing things so you know i would call that what i call that is damned if you do damned if you don't and i don't play that game so almost you know i, I try to do the very best research that i can most of my research is collaborative now with all people of mainly people of color. When I first started out, it was on my own. It was all historical because mm-hmm. I'm trained as a historian. So, and I had mentors who were African-American. I had them all read my work. I asked for feedback, you know, as much as I possibly could. I tried to learn as much as I could. So over the years there have been a few people, I would say that I rarely ever get any um, backlash from Latinos Uh from Native Americans or from uh, Asian American Pacific Islander community. On occasion, it, I will get it occasionally from Blacks who don't know me. But once people get to know me, then things usually change. And I've even had a lot of people come and talk to me, and you know they were skeptical at first, but then they'll get to know me and be like, oh, wow, I was really skeptical of you, but then I got to know you. You know, So I think that there are a th- couple of things that you have to do. One of them is, that you have to be willing to listen. You have to be willing to realize that you are never going, like I don't, people are always calling me an expert in this area and I always. I never refer to myself that way. I never, you know, say that. I mean, I will say that I do have expertise on HBCUs. I have expertise on minority serving <clears throat> institutions. I have higher education expertise. But I don't necessarily run around calling myself that. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Sure. Okay. And a lot of times, people. I mean, I do. I am fully aware that I've done more research related to HBCUs than most people have. But but that's not
0: I mean, something you could say you're an expert. I am you're an yeah, but not. I, yeah, the expert, and, but right? not, I would like, never
1: say V. Right. It's not like you you know, you've achieved yeah, some definitive. Right. No, I wouldn't. And there are some, there are amazing scholars who do research, you know, like people like Ivory Tolson at Howard, Robert Palmer at Howard. Um, one of my former students, Felicia Commodore, who's at old dominion, uh, you know, Steve Mobley at university of Alabama. There's all kinds of people who are kind of up and coming. Um, some of them more established like, um, like Robert Palmer and Ivory Tolson, but, um, there are quite a few people and there are people who came before for me, like a Jackie Fleming, who wrote Blacks in College, or Walter Allen, who you know wrote books about the differences between predominantly white institutions and Black colleges, James Anderson, who wrote you know, The Education of Blacks in the South, who really wrote the, one of the first histories of, of Black colleges. So there are all these people. Now, I happen to concentrate in this area and I've done a lot of work in this area. And I've also mentored many, 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 many people. And I think that's one of the things that's really been the highlight of my life is is mentoring all these young scholars who do research related mm-hmm. to HBCUs, most of them black, but not all. <clears throat> some of them white, some of them Asian, some of them Latino, right, who decided that they want to do this. So, yeah, I mean, and there are some people who don't like me. Now, here's the funny thing is that of those people, most of them never met me. Um, I, I mean there are a couple You're very like Well thank you But but they have never met me Right And I think that if they were to call And spend a little time together mm-hmm. Then they wouldn't have those kinds of prejudices um, But you know I think the one thing I figured out I'm 50 I don't really care If they don't <laughs> like me mm-hmm. It doesn't make me feel bad It doesn't mm-hmm. hurt me I, I just really don't care. Mm-hmm. I think that every, you know, I surround myself with a lot, everybody at my center except for one person is a person of color. It's really important that I surround myself with people who will check me mm-hmm. and um, I collaborate with people of color on all my projects. I mean, these, these things, those things are very, very important and I'm not the lead on everything. So, you know, most of the time at this point, I'm hardly ever the lead. Mm -hmm. So it's just because I want other people to have opportunities. So, you know, I guess at the end of the day, I think I have an excellent track record of mentoring people, of um, producing PhDs, of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, mainly people of color. I haven't had a lot of white mentees or a lot of white um, PhDs, but I would say that I have a long track record of doing that, and so I feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And if someone wants to challenge me, they can challenge me, and if someone wants to say that I shouldn't be doing it, go ahead, That's mm-hmm. do whatever you want, but that doesn't mean I have to listen to you because it's a free world. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to, and, and I'm, I'm never gonna ever tell anyone that they can't do research because of their gender, sexuality, race. I think once we start living in that world, that's not a world that is is uh, well, that's is where we open came to from. research right and, uh, that is yeah. and that
0: would be it would be the, the worst suits right to go I don't think that, that that's uh, right. direction I my last question and then I'll let you get to your um, <laughs> your uh, champagne uh, pre function <laughs> with John Legend um, the you know to the extent that we are you know, people like me working with families um, and talking to students and saying, you know, consider this school, consider that school, consider these factors, consider these elements of it, anything but the damned US News rankings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'm thinking now, you know, relative to the, you know, needing people to sort of speak up, I think more of us could be saying you need to think about the role of diversity, the value of it, and in going into an environment that is going to be very different from the one that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go to a school that the community basically mirrors the community you grew up in, you know, right. in a little, little suburban bubble, you can have that. Um, If you want, and it's still going to feel a little weird and you're still going to be, you know, grow as a result. But going someplace where there's a big, you know, there's a a great preponderance of different types of people. is just going to give you that much more value from your standpoint, your perspective, you know, how should we regard or what would you tell families who are kind of thinking about college and thinking about where to go on that point of um, pay attention to this? Uh, and these are the reasons why it's important for you to pay attention to this as, as, as an experience to be, you know, as a real value add uh, to, to your experience in addition to having all the other things, uh, the other amenities that you're looking for in a college.
1: Well, I mean, I would tell students to go to places that have a whole variety of people because that's how the world works. And one of the things that companies like is they like people who can get along with people, who can work in teams, who can, who can think critically, who can, who are not static but know how to change their mind depending on the evidence and the research. And so I would go to a place that has a whole variety of people that, um, and, and that maybe has, uh, sort of an ethos or a atmosphere, uh, that critical thinking is important, being challenged is important. Um, gets people to be around people who are different uh, and 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 that's everybody right I mean everybody is different and you want to have a whole variety of experiences so I would I would push people to do that I would not suggest going to a place that uh, is just like where you went to high school mm-hmm. I, I just wouldn't I wouldn't do that. What about
0: what what words of advice do you have for for students of color that are looking at PWIs and looking at you know their uh, little pie chart of uh, you know racial composition of students on campus and seeing that little sliver where they're represented?
1: I mean, I would advise them to be hesitant about the institution, and I would ask for actual evidence of how students of color are included. Um, and valued at the institution, not this hyperbole. I would ask for actual evidence of how that works. I would think about going to an institution that is more diverse rather than an institution that is just slightly.
0: What would be a, what would be an example of that of of, of that brand of evidence?
1: Um, I would ask to see who are the student leaders who are running organizations. I would ask to see like what kinds of events they have all year round. I would ask to see what is it that how, how do they i would ask questions around even something as similar as if there are racial incidents around, among roommates or um on campus how, Take do a quick media search how are these dealt with i uh, you know what what happens how are they fair how are they equitable um i so i would be wanting to look at all of those kinds of things i would look at their faculty diversity um i would look at their staff diversity those are all things that i would look at
0: are there baseline measures that they can use as for you know good versus normal um you know what i mean, I mean like if I think, it's under they can look at a lot of faculty yeah and this is the problem right that right
1: if it if if an institution is less than thir- if it's like um how would i say this if it's over 30 percent people of color let's say if you once you hit like 35 40 percent of the faculty you're starting to do okay right mm-hmm. because most of the time you're gonna have about 76 to 78 percent white mm-hmm. so if you can get forty percent 35 percent you know 45 percent of the faculty are people of color I think that that's a really good thing I also think you should look at the same thing on campus. And you can try to go to an institution like that, but you need to understand if it's majority white students that you're going to, you're going to run into some issues. Mm -hmm. You're just going to run into some issues. If it were me, I would go to an institution that has a a, a more racial and ethnic diversity. Um, and the same would go if, like, you know, if you're a queer student or, um, I think you, you want to look for institutions that, that have, Support services and, available and, I know that, to you. and I know
0: that it's been difficult to find that kind of information, um, about campuses. Uh, there at least is the uh, I think the pride index, for, right? For queer yeah. students, but yeah. um, it's been difficult for, to find that information f- if you're a student of color. But I think that, um, uh, the, the, the gentleman who just started out at uh, USC who came from here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean.
1: Harper. Harper mm-hmm.
0: is developing something along those lines. I think. I too. think that he is. Right. Yeah,
1: I think he is. I, I mean, but it's it's easy enough to get information. Need to, no. I mean, you can go. You can use like the National Center for Educational Statistics posts. They're kind of hard, but re- you're asking them.
0: students and families to right. do they're, they're, some pretty intrepid. Uh, I am, discovery but there's here. an
1: easier way. For example. Um, and even U.S. News and World Report gives all this information, too. But you could use, there's something called College Results Online that Education Trust puts out. It's very easy. You just put the name of the college in to this little database. It's so easy. Mm-hmm. It's like Googling. Mm-hmm. And then it'll give you the faculty makeup, the student makeup, according to race and ethnicity, gender. Um, it'll give you all of those kinds of okay. um, Pell Grant, um, eligible students, etc. cetera, um, it, it, what would be nice is to have a little bit more information on the kinds of things that institutions are doing to be more inclusive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One thing you can do is you can take a look at their institutional calendar and see what's valued. That's one thing you could do. I wouldn't go by websites because I think that those are curated. Um, but you can look at student organizations. To, I mean, that's what I would do is I would just mm-hmm. kind of go through. When when my daughter was applying for college, that's what I told her to do. Because she wanted to go to a college that was at least 50% students of color. Mm-hmm. So Bryn Mawr is 51% domestic students of color.
0: Just, just and under that's the what wire. she was. Yeah, so she was interested yeah.
1: in doing that. And she went to Philadelphia public schools where mm-hmm. she was in the minority. And she wanted to be in a diverse environment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, there were limits to... How how white the institution could be because she just didn't want to, yeah. didn't really want to do that. You'd be so. unfamiliar to her. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, what song are you looking forward to hearing the most this evening?
1: Well, it's a Christmas concert. Yes. So, um,. Let's see. I really like his version of, of chestnuts roasting on an open fire because his voice is super low in it. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm okay. really just looking forward to going with my my going with my daughter. And I think it's going to be really fun.
0: I'm extremely <laughs> jealous. Uh, I'm sure you'll have a blast. But thank you so much for taking the time oh, to talk to me. But uh, more importantly, for doing the work that you're doing oh, and you're um, getting it out there. And I think it's, all of it is just such a really important message, particularly the... Uh, The the piece is about um, working with each other and elevating each other and the work of one another. So thanks for doing that.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Absolutely.
0: Right on. Pleasure.
1: Thanks. As you were.
0: (laughs) Okay. Back to John. (laughs) Thanks. Ah, such a delight. Thanks to Professor Gassman for her patience as I pulled this together. This is the 32nd episode, I think, and she joins roughly 30 or so other guests in receiving this very special thanks and apology for my production tardiness. Today's Good Friday, so that's, that's it. I waited for a special Catholic day in her honor to get this out. That's exactly, that was my plan all along. Hey, so she was able to keep one little detail under her hat when I talked to her because a few days after our conversation, the news emerged that Professor Gasman would be leaving Penn and taking a job and her Center for Minority Serving Institutions with her to Rutgers University, where she will be the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Endowed Chair in Education. I hope to be able to talk to her again in the future, and when that happens, it will be from her position in that endowed chair just across the Hudson River from me at Rutgers. I have included links in the show page to a bunch of the different uh, kinds of things that we talked about, stuff that we referenced like Raj Chetty's famous poverty and social mobility data, more detailed information about minority-serving institutions if you want to actually learn more about those, and a pretty fantastic article in The Atlantic by uh, a writer named Will Stansel about the truly heartbreaking story of the students at the T.M. Landry School in Louisiana, which I mentioned in the interview. I want to talk about this for a second because this is a scandal that didn't get anywhere near the kind of attention that the latest one did, and one with equally important implications for education in our society as a separate but similarly critical unmasking of the myth of educational meritocracy in America. Basically, the story is that at TM Landry, poor minority students were brought to the school, uh, which boasted really unbelievable stats about uh, being able to get their kids into the fanciest schools in the country and they filmed totally amazing completely heart-wrenching tugging tear-inducing videos of their reactions when they got into these places and in between those experiences the grown-ups at tm landry falsified transcripts made up stories about the students experiences encouraged them to make up stories and just faked a whole lot of stuff more on this in a second we love a good miracle story, and we want to believe in it. I love the Elizabeth Holmes story. As you guys know, in part for this reason, it provides a shortcut through spending the necessary time to engage the problems that are actually really, really big and gnarly, whether the problems are related to phlebotomy or educational inequality. Here's what the author of that Atlantic article, Will Stancil, had to say about the TM Lander situation. Even though a lot of the, the the trappings of the school were fake, that these students were able to succeed, or some of these students were able to succeed in these these colleges that are, that are the best of the best. Um, and, and a lot of what we know about these colleges sort of suggests that that shouldn't be the case. It suggests to me that the merit, the whole idea that there's this meritocratic system of of higher education, uh, is is a bit overcooked (laughs) maybe maybe the meritocracy isn't all it's cracked up to be maybe there are plenty of equally smart and capable students at state colleges or or less prestigious colleges and maybe all the people at these prestigious colleges you know aren't just the best of the best but are the ones who are lucky enough to get in the reason the students and everyone around them go so crazy when they get into harvard or stanford or places like that is because statistically it is a minor miracle because these kids don't get into those places. So-called elite colleges are also seen as a magic bullet to solving the issue of social mobility, right? The problem is that Landry wasn't just falsifying records. They were also coaching these kids to lie about the hardships they faced on their path to college, a particularly cruel ruse that encouraged the students to lean into their poverty and hardship, if not fabricated outright, to produce a narrative of tragedy, which takes advantage of a particularly pliable part of the admissions process. That being the fact that admissions Counselors are good people with big hearts who believe in the transformative power of a college education. So where the Aunt Becky gang skirted ethics with their money these students were encouraged by adults in their school to do so by highlighting their lack of it. We can't help but take special notice when a student beats the odds, as Landry's students appear to do over and over again. And brothers who got into Harvard and Stanford and who wore sweatshirts saying as much were even invited onto Ellen DeGeneres' show, which is basically the de facto national repository for heartwarming things, right? But is it really heartwarming when we consider why those odds are there in the first place? Should we be celebrating? the ones who got in more than we lament and take issue with and hopefully action on our national fixation with these schools such that people at every income range are doing insane things to try to get in. It reminds me of the skewed lens through which we celebrate a fantastic philanthropic effort to pay for health issues that shouldn't need philanthropy to support, or coworkers donating their vacation time to another co-worker who needs to remain out of work to care for an ill family member, or something like that. Our celebratory joy feels better than the anger we ought to feel and direct at our system's inequality of educational opportunities for students. To the extent that anybody is able to direct our philanthropic efforts towards higher education, we'd be doing much, much, more with our money to support minority-serving institutions than to support the most famous or highly selective places with, frankly, embarrassingly low minority enrollment numbers. If college is an engine of social mobility, then these places are doing more of the heavy lifting and with fewer protein shakes. Sorry. I've mentioned it before, and I'll mention it again. Malcolm Gladwell's podcast episode titled My Little Hundred Million Talks about strong versus weak link thinking and Ellen having the two Harvard and Stanford admits onto her show is as much a display of strong link thinking as donating $100 million to the schools on those kids sweatshirts. And the more we promote those places as the only places that matter, the more stressed everyone feels about college accessibility, and the less accomplished students will feel when they get into the Baruchs and the Cal State Chicos and the Winston-Salem states of the country that do an excellent job at this social mobility question in our minority-serving institutions. So, enter the sane voice, the sensible alternative to Ellen's display, the bona fide, genuine national celebration we have about all college accessibility acceptances. Of course, I'm talking about reach hires, college Signing Day every May 1st, which is an initiative of Michelle Obama's and something that my company, CollegeWise, is sponsoring this year. You can learn more by listening to Episode 27 with Reach Higher Executive Director Eric Waldo and also at bettermakeroom.com slash day And if you are a counselor, that's where you can participate in sharing the good news, no matter where your students are going, because what matters is that they're going and going and doing great things while you're there and then successfully graduate. graduating. Graduating matters a good deal more in the long run than where you do all of that Check out episode 31 with Doug Weber if you want more details on that particular point Everyone take mr. Waldo's advice and just spend some time googling these videos for college signing day or Kick back and enjoy May 1st when the new ones start to roll in and feel good for all kids going to all colleges Because all of it matters thanks guys Uh, i'm gonna shut up and stop yammering and i'll let you get on with your lives stay tuned rate the show subscribe to it and i like to say at the end of the spread love because uh i think that's important but i'm reminded also of the sign off from my favorite morning show when i was in high school mark and brian on klos and they used to say be good humans so be good humans thanks folks